0: Welcome to the Beeson Podcast, coming to you from Beeson Divinity School on the campus of Samford University in Birmingham, Alabama. Now your host, Timothy George.
1: Welcome to today's Beeson Podcast. Today I have the privilege of having a conversation with my dear friend and colleague, Dr. Frank Thielman. Frank Thielman is the Presbyterian Chair of Divinity here at Beeson Divinity School. He's served in this position for a number of years, almost from the beginning of our school, an outstanding internationally known New Testament scholar whose books include Paul and the Law, Theology of the New Testament, the NIV application commentary on Philippians and Ephesians, and now he's written a brand new magnum opus on Romans, the exegetical commentary on the New Testament from Zondervan, the book on Romans. We're going to talk about that primarily today. Frank, welcome to the Beeson podcast.
0: Thank you very much. It's so nice to be here. Well, you know, you've
1: been with us almost from the beginning. You've seen all these things, students come and go, and that's the thing that gives me the greatest joy in my work is seeing the students that have studied with wonderful teachers like you. When I have a chance to talk with them, many times they'll mention you and other faculty as one of the highlights of their experience at Beeson.
0: It is a real joy to teach our students. They are wonderful people and one of the most um, encouraging parts of my work here over the years has been to see how many of our students here end up pastoring wonderful churches, both large and small, and end up on the mission field, often in very difficult places. They are doing uh, just splendid work in advancing the gospel and honoring the Lord Jesus Christ, and that's so encouraging.
1: You know, we pray for them every week in chapel, and some of the people, we can't say where they are. They're in very difficult areas where it would be dangerous if we were to divulge the location they're serving, but they continue to be faithful in their witness, Mm -hmm. and it's just a blessing to work with these wonderful students. Now, you're one of our premier faculty members, and we have a whole faculty of premier faculty members, but I would say you're right at the top of that list and have been for so many, many years. And you've written this magnificent exegetical commentary on the book of Romans. I suppose of all the books in the New Testament, maybe Romans gets pride of place in terms of the times it's been commented on, the pivotal role that it's had in shaping theology and the movement of the church through the centuries. What drew you to Romans?
0: Actually, the, the things you mentioned were uh, the, the hindrances to me in writing on <laughs> Romans. There are so many good commentaries on Romans, and uh, many of them much better than the one I have written. And so a long time ago, uh, I guess 12 or 13 years ago, uh, Tom Schreiner, who is on the editorial board of the Zondervan exegetical commentary in the New Testament, asked me to contribute the volume on Romans. And at first I turned him down, just thinking there are many good commentaries, and I just don't know if I'm equal to the task. But he pressed me on it and encouraged me to think about it more, and I uh, did and prayed about it and uh, decided that this would be uh, a project that I would like to do. And so many years later now, Zondervan's been very patient with me, (laughs) the book is uh, finally
1: out. Now You mentioned Dr. Tom Schreiner, professor at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary in Louisville, and himself, an outstanding New Testament scholar, Pauline scholar. And so uh, he's. this is an area he knows very well, and the fact that he would turn to you as a person to write this commentary speaks a lot about you and the stature you hold in this field. Now, when you have the task of writing a commentary on any book, I suppose, but especially Romans, how do you go about it?
0: What's the first thing you do? That's a a wonderful question, and it's hard to answer because there were a lot of things, I think, that went into the beginning of the writing of this book. One was that I had taught Romans uh, here at Beeson and even in a preceding teaching assignment at another institution for a long time before I sat down to write the commentary. So I had in my own head, an idea about Romans and how to interpret it. So, as I tackled the interpretation of it, I tended just to take it paragraph by paragraph and to read through it and then to read about that paragraph and other commentaries and in the monograph literature and the, journaling liter- the journal literature as well. And uh, then I would just sit down and write. And uh, it's easy to get writer's block when you're writing about Romans because it is uh, such a difficult text and there's so much that's so good that's written on it. So I would try to just sit down and write out my own thoughts, my own interpretation of the Greek text, and then read widely, and correct what needed to be corrected, and footnote where appropriate. And,
1: and you in particular, I think this whole series is aimed to helping pastors yes. who need to teach and preach from the Word of God in a special way. Say a little bit about the format and how that's brought about.
0: That's right. This uh, commentary series is intended for pastors who do know some Greek, although they're not expected to be experts in Greek. So that its target audience is people that have had a year or two of Greek, who can cope with the language, uh, look up words, understand something about the syntax, but whose Greek may not be entirely fluent. And so it engages with the Greek text, it uh, comments on the Greek text, but it does so in a way that is a little bit less complex than some commentaries on the Greek text. Uh, It also engages in a good bit of theological reflection. There's a section uh, at the end of each chapter that reflects theologically on uh, the preceding paragraph or two, and uh, that I think is unusual. Now, there are lots of commentaries with theological reflection, of course, but it's unusual to find a modern commentary that has both all of the exegetical interpretive uh, information needed, as well as a good bit of theological reflection mm-hmm. on that.
1: I'm going to come back to the theology of Romans. You have a whole chapter on the theology of Romans mm-hmm. uh, in this in this volume. Uh, but take us back to Rome itself, to the place where this letter was originally intended by the Apostle Paul. How when was it written? How was it conveyed? Um, Paul himself would, would later go to Rome mm-hmm. by tradition and be executed right. there.
0: That's
1: right. So tell us about that context of the earliest Christian community in Rome.
0: I think the the Roman context of this letter is actually very important. Paul had never been to Rome when he wrote it, of course. He was hoping to go. He says that in chapter 1 and in chapter 15. And he has a lot of friends there. We know that from chapter 16. He knows is, them by name. He knows yeah. them by name. and. <laughs> calls them by name and greets them. It's the longest list of greetings in any of his letters. So he probably knew a great deal about the city of Rome. He certainly knew a lot about Roman culture. He was writing from Corinth, which itself was a very Roman city. And so understanding both the city of Rome and something about Roman culture, I think, is very helpful for interpreting the letter. One of the things I tried to do in this commentary is uh, to bring first century Roman culture to bear on the interpretation of the text. And one element of that culture to which I think Romans speaks, and it's not irrelevant to our own culture today, is that Rome was a highly stratified society. Social groups were carefully sequestered into their own places. They had their own uh, locations, their own social locations. And uh, part of the The way the Roman Empire kept the famous peace of Rome, peace and security of Rome, was by keeping people in their social place. Uh, Paul describes the gospel in such a way in Romans that it breaks through a lot of those boundaries. And um, so, for example, in the greetings at the end, he greets Jews alongside Gentiles. He greets rich alongside poor Uh, He greets women alongside men and highly values uh, women as workers uh, in the church. So he's breaking down lots of social boundaries that would have threatened, I think, uh, Roman culture in some ways. I actually think this is one reason the early church was persecuted by the Roman Empire, because of the the boundary-breaking nature of the gospel. It was and a it, threat to the social norm of the day. That's correct. Mm-hmm. and People felt yeah. threatened by it. So uh, Paul's very careful in chapter 12 to, to say that Christians should never retaliate with evil for evil. They should be nonviolent. Uh, they should be kind toward their enemies and their persecutors. So he never advocates any kind of uh, violent overthrow mm-hmm. of the social structures, but he does advocate the notion that all human beings are created in God's image and therefore are equal with one another in God's eyes, equally sinners and equally uh, people who can embrace and believe the gospel and be saved through it.
1: Now, you and I have both studied in Rome on short terms for several yes, times, and yeah. it's an amazing place to go, isn't it? And it is. kind of takes you right back into that world in some yeah, ways.
0: That, that's correct. I went to Rome three times, actually, during the course of writing this commentary, and uh, each trip looked at different archaeological sites in the city and to some extent outside the city. And uh, those are some of the best memories I have of doing research for this commentary. You
1: know, Rome is the sort of place you just turn a corner and you move back centuries, yeah, and so you great. feel you're just right there with the apostles walking along those, those pavements, uh, perhaps. And, of course, by tradition, both Peter and Paul were executed in Rome under Nero. Uh, and so it has a great... Uh, in the memory of the christian church as being a kind of founding church now roman catholic christians understand that in a different way than some of us protestants do uh, but we all have to i think admire the the great work that god did through the apostles oh yes
0: absolutely and it's a wonderful place i think for all christians of all traditions to visit and benefit from there's a huge amount of christian history that took place there uh so it, it, those were wonderful trips that I remember well. And you're quite right about uh the the, the ruins of uh ancient Rome just being folded right into modern Rome. Yeah. Uh and uh their first and second century apartment blocks right by train stations and uh The Trevi Fountain has a wonderful. Not far from the Trevi Fountain is a wonderful archaeological site with a first-century Roman apartment building in it. It's this is very seldom visited, but uh, it's well kept up actually by the modern uh, Antiquities Society in the city of Rome. And you can imagine Paul when you when you go there and visit it. You can imagine Paul staying in an apartment like this, Mm -hmm. and uh, so it just opens the uh, opens one's eyes i think to what the world was like for these early christians
1: now you mentioned theology and i guess romans has just been forefront in the great theological revolutions in the history of the Christian faith. You think, of course, of Luther and his commentary on Romans from 1516, which actually wasn't published in his lifetime, but but later was discovered. Uh, we think in the 20th century, of course, Karl Barth was, uh, had, you might say, a love affair with Romans and mm-hmm. some of his early writings. He wrote a commentary on Romans that is different than any commentary on Romans that I've ever read. So it's uh, almost an existential experience to read it. And yet it had a great influence on uh, the way people thought about God, about the transcendence of God, about the coming of God in Jesus Christ. So say a little bit about, you might say, the afterlife of Romans, how Romans has continued to inform the people of God through the centuries.
0: It really is amazing the number of significant people in Christian history Uh, for whom Romans has been such an important book, Uh, 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 St. Augustine uh, converted through hearing part of Romans read, um, and then himself engaging in the interpretation of Romans uh, in his writings and even in a commentary on Romans the Origen, but way before Augustine, Origen wrote the first extant commentary on Romans, which is actually well worth reading even today. Uh, some, of the, some of the most important interpretive problems in Romans, Origen uh, has interesting solutions for, and uh, he reflects on the text theologically in a way that's quite helpful at points. Um, And of course, this is true of of the Protestant reformers, uh, Luther, uh, Calvin later, uh, John Wesley much later, all uh, heavily impacted by Paul's letter to the Romans. So yes, it's been a very significant text in the history of the church.
1: Now, you've been fishing in these waters for a long time, even before this commentary, uh, your book, Paul and the Law. I can't do an interview with Dr. Frank Thielman on Romans and not ask you about justification. Okay, <laughs> it's, it's such a central theme. Of course, in Romans and really in, in all of the Bible in the New Testament, these words Paul uses, the righteousness language, mm-hmm. words like righteous, just, justification, justify, he uses those far more in Romans than he does anywhere else, though you find them in Galatians and elsewhere. How does Paul use these terms? What is justification?
0: Justification is being set right with God. It is God's powerful initiative to put us right with himself. And the way we understand justification, I think, has an an enormous impact on how we think about salvation, how we think about humanity and its need for salvation. So it is a very important term. It's a very important theological concept. Uh, the interesting thing about Romans is that Paul uses justification language in two pretty distinct ways throughout the letter. In chapters 1 to 5, uh, judicial language uh, predominates in Paul's use of justification terminology or judicial concepts predominate in his use of the terminology so that uh, we can imagine a courtroom and God declaring us free from punishment, which I think is is probably the right basic meaning of justification, that God declares us free from the punishment that we deserve. And then in chapters, uh, beginning in chapter 6, Paul uses justification language, particularly the word righteousness, which, of course, in, in Greek is justification language, even though we have to change English words to talk about it. He uses it in primarily an ethical sense to talk about doing what is right and being the kind of person that follows uh, the path that God has laid out for us in his word uh, so that we, when, when we are united with Christ by faith and after we have been uh, declared right with God through the gospel, we then become people who are not slaves of sin, but we are slaves of righteousness. Paul kind of apologizes, actually, for using that meta- metaphor of slavery to just dis- talk about the Christian life, because there are elements of it that don't fit. But uh, he does use th- the term uh, slave of righteousness. So, And what he means by that is that we we become capable of doing what God wants us to do, and that our service to him now is it is a service that uh, it, that he has laid out in his word yeah. and we're following his word and this is our this is our guide for what is what is right and good so Paul can use the word in these two ways I think personally he doesn't mix the uses mm-hmm. there are scholars who argue that um, justification language in the early Part of Romans, contains within it the seed of uh, the moral transformation that's then talked about in chapter six. But I think if you talk, if you look at the language closely, he does separate the two concepts, one from the other. Mm-hmm. Now, I think that reminds us of, a, of something that is important. Um, the way the great creeds of the church talk about justification Um is that they use justification as a systematic theological concept that may not line up with the exact terminology of the scriptures. In other words, they are describing concepts that the scriptures will sometimes use, uh, cover by the use of a single word. I think justification and righteousness language in Paul is one of those words that covers more than one topic within systematic theology. So that Paul can use righteousness language to talk about both what what systematic theologians call justification and sanctification.
1: I wonder if you would comment on the basis of this freedom from punishment entailed by justification. And I'm thinking in particular of one verse, Romans 3.25, and that term mercy seat mm. that seems so central to Paul's argument there in Romans 3.
0: Yes. Yeah, it's a very unusual Greek word. It's the Greek word Uh It's the word that's used in Leviticus chapter 16 to describe the piece of furniture in the Holy of Holies that uh, was on the Ark of the Covenant. It's the lid of the Ark of the Covenant with cherubim on either side of it. And it was the place where blood was sprinkled on the Day of Atonement. And this is the word that Paul uses in Romans 3, 25 and 26, and in that passage there in 21 to 26, he uses hilasterion to talk about Christ being the place of atonement for our sins. It's an interesting word in Greek, the root hilas, it's the, the word is hilasterion, the root hilas refers to reconciliation, and the suffix terion in Greek refers to a place where something happens. So, a hilasterion is a place where reconciliation happens. And it is, I, I think, in Paul's thinking, it, it, the cross of Christ, Christ's death, is the place where reconciliation happens between God and man and humanity at God's initiative. Mm-hmm. He takes that initiative, and we're reconciled to him through the death of Christ. So, he is the place of reconciliation. Paul makes it very clear, I think, in 321 to 26, that this sacrifice in which Jesus becomes the mercy seat, he's both the the place of the sacrifice and the sacrifice itself, this is a substitutionary sacrifice. He is dying in our place. We are So we are reconciled to God by the substitutionary sacrifice of Jesus.
1: That seems to be borne out elsewhere in Paul. Um, for example, First Corinthians, he says, Christ, our Passover, has been sacrificed for us. So the whole metaphor of the Passover, what it involved, the event, the things leading up to it, the okay. deliverance. Christ is the Passover. All of these things combined into one is our deliverance from this punishment which issues
0: in justification. Very helpful parallel. That's exactly right.
1: Now, another passage in Romans that I have often been troubled with, I think I've got it right, but I'm willing to be corrected by someone more knowledgeable than, than I myself, is Romans 7. Yeah. And this famous You know, when I want to do, I can't do, and when I try to do, I don't do, Mm -hmm. and this I, that shifts back and forth. This is a classic debate, say, between Calvinists and Arminians, right. and lots of other people come on different... Why do you read Romans 7?
0: Romans 7 is a very difficult passage. I mean, we all have to start by saying that, and I don't think anyone should be faulted for their, you know, for for choosing one or the other reading of it. I mean, there are probably some readings that are a little outlandish, but it's a very difficult passage. Well, um, And what makes it difficult is uh, really two things. Uh, Paul uses the term I uh, throughout 7, 7 to 25. So uh, on a surface level, it seems very clear he would be talking about himself because he uses the word I. And yet, he also says, says some things that don't seem to pertain, based on his preceding argument, to himself in the present as a Christian. For example, he says... I am sold under sin. Whereas in chapter 6, he's just said we are free from the domination of sin and so on. So uh, everyone recognizes this is a difficult text and how to read it is a uh, fraught question. I, I think the first thing to recognize is what Paul's doing in his argument at this point. Seven seven to twenty five is a defense of the Mosaic Law against the charge that the Mosaic Law is on the side of sin. Paul wants to make the case that even though it is true that the law brings wrath, as he said in four fifteen, and that the law, when it comes onto the scene, causes sin to increase, as he said in five twenty and twenty-one. That despite those truths, the law itself is not sinful, and uh, the law is not something separate from God, but God gave it. So part of what he's doing in chapter 7 is describing the connection between the law and sin as a way of exonerating the law from any involvement itself, in and of itself, as the law of God in evil. And so in, in 7 uh, seven to 12, 13 is a transitional verse, but in 7, 7 to 12, Paul uses past tense verbs to describe an I who uh, has been under the law and for whom the law has uh, come onto the scene and which has kind of enslaved him. And the question is, who's Paul talking about there? Is he talking about himself autobiographically? Is he talking about Adam, perhaps, and using the I to, ref- to refer to Adam? Uh, is he talking about Israel and Israel's experience of the law? I think Paul is probably talking about the law's action um, on anyone's life uh, who is not a believer uh, when, they, when they become aware of the requirement of God, and yet before the Holy Spirit has come to indwell them, they uh, become aware of their inability to really do what God requires of them. Uh, it's, uh, they become aware of the fact that they are a sinner, mm-hmm. and the law makes that really clear to us. Then in 7, uh, 13 to 25, Paul uses present tenses. And this is where uh, people uh, get rather exercised about (laughs) whether Paul is describing the present existence of the Christian or describing something that is typical of an unbeliever. And I think the reason this is such a hotly debated topic uh, has to do with differing views over the history of Christian interpretation of where sanctification uh, fits within the Christian life. Uh, My own view is that uh, chapter 8, verses 1 to 17 really answer this question for us. Paul, I don't think, in the first instance, is talking about a believer in 7, uh, 13 to 25. Uh, the language he uses there does show a struggle with sin that would be surprising for an unbeliever, but it's a struggle that is so intense and so under the, the slavery that the law through its, next, through its connection with sin has imposed that um, given what he said in chapter 6, I don't think it can refer to a believer. Uh, and then in chapter 8, verses 1 to 17, Paul shows the believer's freedom From that terrible slavery uh, that sin has used the law to put people under. And we see there the freedom that Christians now have to do the law of God. It's not that we do it perfectly.
1: By the power of the Spirit. By
0: the power of the Holy Spirit. By the power of the Spirit. Exactly right. So I am a Calvinist. But I read seven thirteen to 25 in in a way that is not traditionally associated with Calvinism. You're a Calminian. No, no, I'm not even a Calminian. I'm just a Calvinist. But.
1: Well, you've challenged but, yeah. my own understanding of that. I'm going to go back and reread what you've said about it. And uh, what you're saying is compelling in some ways, particularly that way you sliced 7 in terms of a believer, non-believer uh, application. Well... Uh, we're almost out of time and this is Really a terrible question to ask you near the end of an interview. But you've got to talk about Romans 9 to 11. That's another locus classicus for the doctrine of election and been hotly debated, of course. Uh, It's a hard passage in some ways to understand. Uh, How do you think Paul uh, meant Romans 9 to 11, especially with reference to the stumbling of Israel? It's a really
0: good question. And uh, again, it's very much like Romans 7. It's one that has divided... Christians down through interpretive history. And once again, I think the solution to, you know, looking sort of beyond the divisions that what Paul was saying here lies in recognizing the place of Romans 9 through 11 in this argument and asking ourselves the question, what were the reasons that Paul wrote Romans 9 through 11? Uh, And he wrote these chapters for reasons that are quite different than answering questions about free will and predestination. That was not uppermost in his mind. I think he has a set of presuppositions that certainly come into play in what he says in Romans 9 through 11. So it's appropriate to derive a doctrine of predestination from these chapters. But in the first instance, it's not what Paul was intending Romans 8 ended with the statement that nothing can separate us from the love of God. And yet Paul knows that his own, in his own preaching experience, uh, when he goes into the synagogue to preach, it's primarily the Gentiles seated in the synagogue who respond to the gospel. Not entirely. There are many Jews, like Paul himself, who come to faith, but they're outnumbered by the Gentiles. So, the huge question before Paul at the end of Romans 8 is, if nothing can separate us from the love of God, and Paul's promises to his people Israel are true, then how is it that the gospel seems to have separated so many Jewish people from the love of God? And he needs to show that in chapters 9 through 11, that what's happened in the proclamation of the gospel is not inconsistent with God's purposes for his people Israel in the past, and as he has prophesied for them for the future. So Romans 9 through 11 are really about Israel and the place of Israel in God's purposes. And so in chapter 9, I think Paul wants to show that uh, God's people have never been limited... uh, God's people have never been coextensive with uh, ethnic Israel in a physical sense, that uh, God's people is more than just being a descendant of Abraham. And he shows that from Scripture. It's very important for him to show that from Scripture, which he does in, in 9, one to 29. And then in 9.30 to 10.21, the second major section of Romans 9 through 11— Paul uh, shows that Israel has received many preachers and has itself rejected uh, the gospel often, not always, but often when it has heard the gospel. And here I think he gets into the issue of Israel stumbling, and he, he brings up the issue of why so many within Israel have stumbled over the gospel. And he says they have stumbled over the stumbling stone, who is Christ I think there Paul probably has in mind his own pre-Christian existence. He stumbled over the stumbling stone who was Christ. The chief priests, the, uh, many of the Pharisees, uh, the, the many within the Sanhedrin stumbled over the proclamation of the gospel, and they stumbled over Christ because Christ thre- threatened their own interpretations of the Mosaic law. Which often were exclusivistic of the outcasts that Jesus reached out to, and because Jesus threatened their positions of power and privilege. Uh, so I think primarily in Romans nine thirty to ten four, when Paul talks about the stumbling of Israel, he's talking about the people of the the Jewish people of privilege who rejected yeah. Jesus and engineered his uh, together with Pilate. Uh, Schemed to put him on the cross. And Paul was part of that circle. Remember, according to Acts, he received letters from the high priest Mm -hmm. in Jerusalem to persecute the Christians in Damascus. So he was part of this inner circle. I think that primarily is who Paul is talking about there.
1: You know, when we get to the end of 11, there's this one of these great texts in all of the Bible, I think. I want to read it and then have you comment on it because Paul is drawing here from the Old Testament. It's a doxology, it's a praise to God, it's a kind of confession in a way of how much we don't understand about the deep mysteries and eternal purposes of God, and yet how we are drawn to the center of all of God's revelation in Jesus Christ. Here's what it says, and then you will give a comment, please. Sure. How deep is the wealth and wisdom and knowledge of God? How undiscoverable his judgments and untraceable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has become his advisor, or who has advanced him a sum and will be repaid by him? Because all things are from him and through him and for him. Glory belongs to him as age gives way to age.
0: Amen. That's nice. a one, wonderful that text. Yeah. I think Paul, having come to the end of this complex explanation of the ways of God with his people Israel in chapter 11, recognizes that there are elements of God's purposes in history that can never be grasped by human wisdom. And he indicates that um even though we can't grasp them, we can trust God to be gracious. He is He will never be a person that any human being can give to and justly demand repayment from God Mm -hmm. (laughs) for for that gift. It's quite the reverse. God gives to us, and we then repay him with uh, our very inadequate, uh, often inadequate obedience and uh so I think paul is is talking there about uh the complexity of God's ways with human beings. He's developed in chapter eleven a very complex argument about god's uh, what God is doing with his people Israel that um, implies that some within Israel have already been saved uh, that the reason many within israel have rejected the gospel, is to allow the gospel mercifully to go to the Gentiles. But when God's purposes are finished with that advancement of the gospel to the Gentiles, Paul says, then all Israel will be saved. And I don't think that means all Israel that's ever lived down through time. And we have to allow for some hyperbole in the word all. But it does mean that many, many... Uh, Israelites will be saved through the gospel before the second coming of Christ. I don't see any other way to interpret that. Mm. Well, this is a very complex scenario that Paul has just outlined. And in the course of it, he has interpreted scripture all the way through in such ways that it supports this scenario. And I think he recognizes there are real mysteries here. And he's commenting on the, the mystery and the inability of us to grasp what God is doing in this wonderful doxology at the end of Romans 9 through 11. It's it's a reminder, I think, to any interpreter of Romans, and especially of Romans 9 to 11, to approach the text with humility.
1: Yeah, a summons to humility. Well, my guest today on the Beeson podcast has been my wonderful colleague, Dr. Frank Thielman, a marvelous New Testament scholar of international repute. He's written many books, and his most recent one is the exegetical commentary in the New Testament volume on Romans from Zondervan. Thank you for this commentary, and thank you for this
0: conversation. Thank you very much, Dean George. I've really enjoyed it. You've been listening to the Beeson Podcast with host Timothy George. You can subscribe to the Beeson Podcast at our website, Beesondivinity.com.